what was your least favorite VC experience? Really? <laughs> Come on. Want, want me to yeah. say that on record? Uh, yes, absolutely. From Foundation Capital, this is B2B a CEO, a podcast about the startup journey, about going from idea to IPO and growing from a founder into a CEO. On each episode, I speak with notable CEOs and founders and get their stories about what it took to build a company of scale and become a leader in the enterprise. I'm Ashu Gard, a general partner at Foundation Capital. I'm excited to have Birud Shait, founder and CEO of Gupshup, and prior to that, founder of what is now Upwork with us today on the podcast. Thanks for joining us, Birud. Thanks, Ashu. Thanks for having me here. Uh, Birud, why don't you start by telling a little bit about your story? Sure. I mean, just very quickly, grew up in India, went to IIT, Bombay, grad school at MIT. That's when I came to the U.S. Dropped out of the PhD program with a master's, had a short stint on uh, Wall Street, and then I started my first company. It was called Elance, which later, or is now called Upwork. We pioneered online freelancing and remote work and so on. You know, took a long while for that to happen, for the world to catch up. And then um, somewhere along the way, I sort of left and then started, uh, and both these were with co-founders, right? So co-founded another company now called Gupshup. And yeah, happy to tell you more about it. But really, that's, uh, that's it. Really long journeys, you know. Uh, Upwork was 20 years to an IPO. Gupshop is 17 years and counting. And they weren't fully sequential because I, I wasn't there all the time at Upwork. But uh, yeah, I've been, I don't know, blessed or cursed with these incredibly long uh, journeys. But hey, I'm still here, survived and hanging in there. And they're both uh, doing well, yeah. That's great. 25 years and two unicorns. That's not bad. I guess, yeah, I want to looking back at it, yes, didn't feel that way, you know, looking forward. You know, you've gone through so many twists and turns in 17 years with so many different sort of things that you've tried, some of which have worked, some of which haven't. Would be great for you to sort of share with the listeners a couple of sort of lessons you've learned along the way, a couple of things you wish you had done differently. Well, I, I don't know if I would say it would have done it differently in the sense that everything that didn't work also taught us why it didn't work and how it actually could work. So, you know, it just sort of carries you forward and we wouldn't be here were it not for uh, some of the experimentation, right? I think uh, in, in the innovation business, I mean, there's no alternative except to... To iterate know, and to, you know, to zig and zag. Yeah. But for you as a CEO and a founder, if, as you step back and say, you know, Here's some lessons that I could share with folks who are doing this the first time that hopefully instead of them doing it in 17 years, they'll do it in 15. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, <clears throat> uh, well, uh, timing is always the hardest thing to get right, right? And uh, because it's not just timing with respect to the opportunity, it's also timing with respect to the competition sometimes, right? If you're too late, well, somebody else might already have built out something. If you're too early, of course, you know, it's, it's harder to uh, figure that out. Uh, that's one part of it. Um, maybe the uh, only thing I'd say is, you know, uh, I mean, you do one, you have to trust the process of iteration and trial and error, optimize the learning cycle. Those are the things that I think just over my long entrepreneurial journey, I've gotten better at, right? Which is you don't build or overcommit ahead of the curve. Uh, you, you know, entrepreneurs are always optimistic 
perhaps even exuberant, but you have to do the reality check with the data. Are customers buying? And if they're not buying for whatever reason, you know, you need to understand that, right? So I think things like that, uh, you know, lean methodology, again, is sort of a great approach. You put out sort of a prototype, see how, how it resonates. Uh, you kind of fake it till you make it even, right? And that are people buying it? or give it away, right? Even if you give it away, are they using it? And look at the, look at what they do, not what they say. I think uh, really just optimizing that learning cycle and uh, just keeping an eye out for, for trends, connecting the dots faster or before than anyone can do, right? Uh, those are some of the tips and tricks that really, uh, and it's sort of, you know, unfortunately it's, it's very experiential. You kind of have to Try you sort of have to this. fail to learn. Yeah, I wish you could just read a book and, and figure it out. But certainly, you know, I think these are some useful. No, that's lessons. super helpful. For most entrepreneurs, you know, when they start to think about doing a startup for a few years, some people think about doing it for a decade. You've been at it just at Gupshop alone for 17 years. What's kept you going at a personal level? So uh, this is certainly not by design, okay? It's by accident in that, <laughs> of course, I would love the five, seven, 10-year journey as opposed to the longer one, right? What keeps me going, I mean, this is what I love doing. This is, what else would I be doing? I don't know, uh, you know, if it's not this, would be some other company. I mean, this, you know, the process of innovation, figuring out what works, how it works, you know, that really is just a, a very intellectual, engaging, satisfying sort of journey when it works out. But yeah, when it takes long, uh, I mean, it really tests your your grit, your perseverance, your patience, and and you know maybe the thing I've learned is uh, you kind of, um, if I can use an analogy, it's a little bit like the surfer, right? Who might be very talented, but until the right wave comes along, they can't show off their skills, and you just got to wait for that. You got to you know feel the energy, so to speak, right? So I think. That's where, you know, uh, so what kept me going was was this um, confidence, maybe even conviction that, at least in my case, messaging, you know, would get richer, it can be transformative. And when that happens, by the way, it's like the whole internet. It's it's as if at least Gupshap is back in 1995, right? But having seen the whole movie once, and now you're going to get to uh, replay it again, and we, we all know how big that, you know, the first web became. So what else could be bigger than that, right? So it's sort of so like... That must be exhilarating today to have gone from there to sort of you're truly defining, in a sense, the internet experience for many, many hundreds of millions, perhaps even billions of people around the world. Absolutely, yeah. I think it's, uh, it's, it's exciting, right? I mean, and I think it's also gratifying in many ways, right? Both Upwork and even Gupshap, right? I think we are, we essentially brought the internet to the rest of the world. Right. Uh, in in case of Upwork, it was economic opportunity. Freelancers from faraway places could engage into this digital economy. I think Gupshap is sort of doing the same thing, right? Helping businesses uh, really connect and and you know it, it transforms societies. It just uh, it's very gratifying. I mean, even to this day, I visit many different countries and people will come and walk up and say, "Hey, we were two people and now we are a hundred person business uh, that was built up on Upwork, for example." But yeah, I think, uh, you know, that's apart from, of course, you know, financial rewards and the, the wealth and valuation that, uh, that a business generates. I think being able to, I don't know, make that dent in the universe, so to speak, is really gratifying. And you want to, you want to solve these big problems. And yeah, so it's really just the internet for the emerging markets getting built and uh, reinvented uh, all over again. You know, one of the things that struck me when we were talking recently was how... You've raised money at a billion and a half. 
give and take, you're growing at 80% year over year on a large base, and you're also a very profitable business. That combination of high growth and profit profitability is so rare in Silicon Valley. Can you share a little bit more behind that secret? Uh, sure. I mean, some of it, of course, is, is the context where, like I mentioned, this conversational internet is rising in the emerging markets in the mobile-first ecosystems of the world, right? So as that grows more and uh, firstly, these economies are doing well in spite of the market volatility. The digitization level, broadly speaking, in India or Brazil or Southeast Asia is so low that there's so much room for e-commerce and for digital banking and so on, right? So all of these, our customers are growing very fast, which drives our revenue growth as well, right? So so that's exciting. And then uh, the other is, you know, I think the, the cost structure as well uh, makes makes a difference. Now, in our case, we started sort of the engineering team was always in India, and uh, then our market also, our sales and business efforts also focused on the Indian market because that's where we started mm-hmm. seeing a lot of traction. So really, the bulk of the team is uh, based out of India. And then, you know, it's uh, clearly the cost of living in India is very different from, let's say, here in Silicon Valley. So that gives you, you know, um, I don't know, a 2 to 3x advantage. That makes a huge difference for young companies. I mean, we would not have survived if our cost structure was, let's say, 2 to 3x what, what it is. Because ultimately, right, innovation businesses succeed or fail by how many experiments you can do and which ones of those succeed. And the less you spend on fixed costs, the more experiments you could afford, which increases then the odds of success and so on, right? So I think... So part uh, of it was lower cost structures, but it sounds like part of it is also the discipline you've had in sort of being able to keep maintaining sort of this innovation cycle. Because lots of companies in India are burning a ton of cash. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Well, so you're right. I mean, look, uh, to be honest, there was a phase where we wanted to raise money and nobody would give us money, including you, uh, Ashu. But uh, no, so I think when that happens, I mean, you've got, just as an entrepreneur, you have to do, have the discipline to live within your means and grow and scale the business so that when the right opportunity comes along, the big wave comes along, right? So in our case, uh, it was two or three things that happened altogether. You know, one is WhatsApp introduced business APIs and added features. Um, then COVID hit, which drove a lot of digital acceleration. A complete digital transformation. Yeah. yeah, and then um, and messaging was you know a critical part of that infrastructure. So we just saw this uh, sort of growth uh, spurt that then became a continuing growth wave, right? We raised the funding, which we then used to reinvest back in the business and so on. So, so yeah, I think as an entrepreneur, you know, you really have to be disciplined to, you, you have to play the cards you're dealt with, right? And you can't complain, you can't pretend to be, uh, and you, the worst mistake is you can't assume that you'll have future rounds future. of financing. Which, so, but given that everyone today in the Valley is having to deal with the fact that, you know, efficiency is back in vogue mm-hmm. and, and capital efficient growth is sort of the, the mantra of the day. I mean, you've had capital efficient growth for a decade. Yeah. So what are the two or three lessons you would share with entrepreneurs to say, look, this is what I learned the hard way, and this is what I would recommend all of you do? Well, the financial part is straightforward. You know how much you can afford, and therefore you've got to stay within that, right? The, the real challenge that most entrepreneurs face is, where do you invest, where do you not, where do you pull back, and so on, and, you know... Everybody wants, you know, the best product and the best service and the best go-to-market strategies and the best marketing and, and on and on, right? And then that's where the choices become hard. Like, how do you, how do you make it all work? And I think we've been uh, somewhat disciplined in sort of saying, you know, there are two or three things that really matter, right? One is 
your innovation engine, right? And your product is critical. Without that, you know, you can't grow or scale or survive even. And then the other is just sort of a very strong link to what the customers care about, what they use. Uh, I think a lot of entrepreneurs get carried away with sometimes vanity projects, right? Like your, your real estate footprint could be, or your marketing campaigns or, you know, advertising strategies and so on, right? So I think if you can just really be just carefully look through saying what matters, right, between the innovation that you build and what the customer needs. I think that link you have to invest in, perhaps even over-invest, but a lot of other areas you could under-invest and won't, you know, you could get away with it. Just focus on really the, the value-producing activities, yeah. Well, people tell me that, you know, Mark Benioff took sort of focusing on what matters to customers to the extreme and he went public with a dozen engineers. I know. I, I don't know if that's possible now or something. He must have had a lot of other people, salespeople. Maybe just had great engineers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I want to keep building on this, pushing this a little bit further, because I do think this notion of capital efficient growth is probably the most fundamental challenge in our current time. What advice do you have for entrepreneurs who primarily have a Silicon Valley-based cost structure and are now being forced to think about how do they move costs outside Silicon Valley, potentially offshore completely to India or other places, how should they start? So if a business already, let, let's start with does the business have flexibility or not, right? If they are already caught with an unsustainable business model, I mean, then, you know, they might have to do drastic surgery and so on. But it's a lot easier, let's say, when, when, when somebody is getting started, right? There are the, the way to think about it is there are certain skill sets and certain capabilities that are just not possible to get anywhere else except in the valley and those are those are the skills that you want to you know hire here and then there are a lot of other skill sets and capabilities the the world has just become so much more connected you can hire people from uh, you know remote work global uh, teams and so on the tools the infra uh, the vetting all of that has become so much uh, better right so it's pretty well understood so really Building a remote-first culture and a remote-first organization is is one part of it. I think leveraging a lot of cloud infra, which actually is is great because it reduces you know costs and so on. And then just this this discipline of you know uh, what is it? Uh, can you this, this lean approach, right? Can you build a version one that customers like, which then uh, you know you can you can get the validation. I think sometimes the issue is not just the cost of the resources alone, but uh, when it's misdirected effort or or sort of spent energy that didn't... Which is the prioritization the part, that really is exactly. focused on things that matter. Uh, I think totally get that. I think, you know, taking a remote-first approach from day one. I think, you know, a lot of teams are starting to think about engineering, mm -hmm. remote-first. And, and I tell, my advice to most of my founders is think about how you can at least have 50% of your engineering teams be in lower-cost locations, ideally two-thirds, mm -hmm. and keep a small core team in Silicon Valley for skills that you just feel you can't get elsewhere. I think the challenge is that's a good start, but it's not enough. Most companies are being forced to think about how do they have sales, marketing, finance, operations in lower cost locations. Mm -hmm. And that's new for most startups. It's not something they've ever dealt with. Any advice for people thinking about that? Yeah, I think, I mean, Look, the emerging forces are driving this behavior anyway, and there's a lot of new companies that, that provide 
you know, some of them just provide the solution in a box, right? So they might, uh, there are outsourced uh, accounting agencies or sometimes even outsourced sales teams, inside sales teams for sure, that operate out of different regions in the world that can, that you can hire and some of them even will take performance-based pricing and so on, right? So, so outsourcing to established companies might be a good way to get started. Uh, doing it yourself, you know, only makes sense if you have at least a certain minimum level of scale, maybe, you know, at least a few dozen people or something, because when it's subscale, it just doesn't make sense. You're better off paying the premium to somebody else who then aggregates to build the scale, right? So, so I think the options are just increasing. I mean, there's no question that this is becoming um, easier, uh, easier to do in terms of leveraging engineering talent from around the world there. Yeah. What other advice do you have just more broadly for founders who are dealing with, you know, the world around them has changed in the last six months and you've seen every recession sort of in recent history? Right. Yeah, I think, you know, so, so I mean, we talked about cost structure and so on, but some of that is actually tactical, right? I think if you, maybe the way to step back and think about it is uh, just what ideas are they working on? What are they focused on? Uh, and which ones... Uh, will work with what kind of models, right? I think, uh, like, say, a, a meta-like bet on the metaverse, right? That's really long-term. It's sort of a lot of high-end engineering talent. And, and you know, so, so th there's a very different approach you take to something that's really far out. And, and for that, by the way, it depends on your ability to fundraise and sustain like a multi-year effort, right? Can you raise $5 billion a year? Exactly, right. So Zuckerberg can clearly can. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, so, so the approach you take there would be very different. On the other hand, if you're, you know, you're building a, let's say, a, a B2B business, right, which is a lot of it is around workflows and customization and listening to the customers and having short cycles and so on, and, uh, or finding product market fit in the early days and then just you know, fast execution, I mean, you're better off with, with, a, with a remote structure because I think you have uh, you know, technical skill sets that can, that can build things very well, right? And then if your business is something different, maybe a consumer-led business where maybe the product strategy or something is, is the core competency, of course, so those are the things where you have to over-invest. But I think you know, just like cloud has made uh, infra cheaper, I think uh, in a lot of ways, this, this global freelancing has made, you know, even uh, engineering talent and, and resources available in lots of different ways. So, so you can mix and match it, and it sort of depends on, on the idea, right? But in a, when the cost of capital is high, I mean, you have to have these, you know, ideas that, that are home runs, if you will, because I think if they're just sort of incremental, either your cost structure has to be really low, or you're just not going to get funded because, you know, of the, of the way multiples and Wall Street works. I, th I, think, I think you said it well. You know, I, I do think, uh, at least as an investor, I see that as an advantage. Uh, that in a world where cost of capital is high, where the, the premium on capital efficiency is so high, it automatically filters out the average idea. Right. Uh, only, only ideas that can build very large businesses capital efficiently can be... You, can be funded or can deserve funding at this point. And so, you know, in some sense, it resets uh, the environment for a new founder. What is obviously challenging is if you already have raised a seed or a Series A or you've raised a Series A and a Series B, right. and you did that in a certain, in a different era, and now you sort of have to survive in, a, in, in the current era. Uh, agreed. I think the only counter I'll say to that, uh, so, so certainly, look, from the point of view of a VC that's looking for home runs, that's absolutely true, right? But 
at the same time, there's a lot of technology yet that the world needs. And not yep. all of it may be VC investable, and that's fine. Uh, it could be bootstrapped, and the founders, you know, it could be uh, great, you know, value creation for an individual uh, or a team of founders and so on. So I think the point is you just have to, you know, we don't, you know, entrepreneurs sometimes uh, we, we sort of blank out the rest of the world and you focus on just your own execution. But but we don't operate in a vacuum, right? We operate in a world, in a, there's a reality check always, essentially, what's the cost of capital? How easy is it to raise? And this is a time where capital is very expensive. So you, you've got to find creative, you know, uh, ways of, of building a business in these circumstances. Maybe if we get back to the the go go days again, where you know Fed funds are cheaper and so on, you could you could take a different approach, right? You could go very aggressive with consumer businesses, where you spend hundreds of millions of dollars a year, kind of thing. I think this is not the time. Probably not going to be for a few years until the cycle turns. Until the cycle turns again, uh, Birud, I want to zoom out a little bit from both Gupshap and Upwork and sort of your direct experiences to get your perspective on what's going on in India more broadly. Uh, you know, one of the things I was reading about recently is Zoho has built, you know, an India-based CRM company that's got over a billion in revenues mm -hmm. with no outside investments. So, you know, it's a phenomenal success and continues to grow very nicely on that. Uh, and it seems like it's the harbinger of many other exciting things to come from India. You've done a phenomenal job with sort of most of the team being based in India. Uh, first of all, any thoughts on Zoho specifically and then more broadly on sort of B2B startups coming out of India? Um, no, I mean, I, certainly Zoho is an amazing company, what they've done. And what's what's lesser known is, you know, they even innovated in, in how they hire people, train them, and build it up, right? So they went into some of these remotest of towns in India, um, and these are not the most well-known universities, but they would hire literally everybody from uh, some of these schools, and then after their college education, give them additional years of, of training, um, not just technical training, but even you know professional and work experience uh, kind of training and so on. Uh, and and you know they've literally adopted like several villages and towns, and they continue to do this in an, in an amazing way. But that, but through that, they've built a very loyal group of people that have done amazing things, right? And and think about it, right? Given those constraints and what they did, they said. Uh, at least in the beginning, right? Their, uh, a lot of their innovation was to take uh, ideas that from elsewhere that already had product market fit, right? Like cloud collaboration, you know, uh, the, the equivalent of uh, uh, Google uh, Slides or Google, you know, spreadsheets and so on. And they kind of uh, uh, they just created different versions of it at different price points with different capabilities. And uh, but you keep doing that again for uh, you know years. And at this point, they have a giant suite with, with a lot of innovation that's built into it as well, right? So it's really, they just, uh, I mean, it, it sort of ties to the broader idea of uh, B2B SaaS. And there's, there's a wave of B2B SaaS companies expected to come out of India. And when I say India, it doesn't mean literally Indian companies. It could be American companies with a large Indian base of yep. operations and so on, because that you know, cost structure sort of drives enormous advantage. It, it allows these companies, even small teams, to iterate to, to you know, the, the ability to fail, the ability to experiment, learn, and improve is, is just so much greater. And in these sort of, you know, innovation businesses, that really is the, is the differentiator between the companies that succeed versus fail, right? I think uh, um, 
yeah, just companies die because you run out of runway, and if you can extend the runway and keep your cost structure low. Um, so I think, uh, I mean, we, we see there's so many of these $10 million plus companies that will get to, you know, $100 million plus in the next uh, few years and perhaps even going public and things like that. So, um, yeah, I think there's, there's a, just a secular change in how, um, you know, at least B2B SaaS companies are being built, yeah. No, I think you're. I think you're spot on. I think. I think. You know. I really do think. If you take sort of a ten-year view, uh, I mean, after Silicon Valley, Bangalore is going to be the the second largest source of tech unicorns, uh, at least in the B two B SaaS context. Right. Uh, just given the scale of activity there, and obviously it's not just limited to Bangalore. I think there are multiple locations. Bombay has a few. Mm-hmm. You know, Chennai and Hyderabad, but it, Bangalore has become sort of the epicenter of this in India. Uh, and we're starting to see a lot of exciting sort of B2B yeah. startups. Uh, exactly. And the other the other cool thing is, you know, it, India also has a large native market, right? Uh, I mean, there's a billion plus people and the base level of digitization is so low that the country needs enormous amounts of technology. So there's a lot of local consumption happening there as well. And I think over the next couple of decades, um, you know, India will arguably have the greatest amount of wealth creation in history, right? Almost like what China did over the last two decades and the U.S. sort of before that. But if you look at macro numbers, right, India is what, about a $3 trillion GDP? And they're talking about, you know, getting to $30 trillion in, in like a couple of decades. I mean, there's no other economy in the world that can add 20 plus trillion worth of GDP value, right? And a, and a good chunk of that is going to come through tech and tech-enabled businesses. So, so just its own um, native market and need for uh, technology is, is one big part. The other is, of course, you know, cost of living, uh, which becomes a huge cost advantage for global businesses as well. So you know, I think in general, I mean, it doesn't matter whether you're from India or from elsewhere, but uh, you know, just like the, the, the Chinese digitization over the last couple of decades, I mean, you're gonna have that happening in India, so you know, People should figure out a way to have at least an India angle, some India play in whatever you're doing. But it's, it's going to really impact uh, the, the course of tech development worldwide. Thank you, Birad. Thank you for okay. joining us today. All right. Thanks, uh, thanks, Ashu, for having me. Really enjoyed the discussion. That's our show for now. You can find past episodes and subscribe to future ones wherever you get your podcasts or at foundationcapital.com. And if you like the program, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps others to find the show. B2B a CEO is a production of Foundation Capital, an early stage venture capital firm with over $3 billion in committed capital and 29 public companies to our name, including Netflix, Lending Club, TubeMogul, and Sunrun. At Foundation Capital, building companies is in our bones. I'm Ashu Garg, a general partner at Foundation Capital. I'm passionate about helping B2B entrepreneurs who are trying to solve hard problems. So if this podcast speaks to you, if you're a technical founder who's interested in scaling an enterprise startup into a massive business and scaling themselves into a true CEO, drop me a line.